You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. TrickBot gets some new tricks. Poisoning the advertising supply chain. Hessian schools will shy away from American cloud services. A novel phishing campaign is technically savvy but gives itself away with broken English fish bait. Congress would like to see presidential cyber war instructions. Microsoft warns of foreign attacks on elections. FaceApp looks suspicious. And a suspect is collared in a malicious macro case. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 18th, 2019. Deep Instinct sees a new capability in TrickBot, email credential harvesting. They're tracking TrickBooster, a new module that's able to infect email accounts, use them to send spam, and then delete the spam from the sent email box. There's potential in such an approach for what Barracuda calls, in a new report, lateral phishing. This technique uses hijacked accounts to send malicious spams to its victims, counting on their familiarity with the apparent sender to induce them to open the email. Researchers at Confiant have found that a Hong Kong actor is trafficking in malvertising that effectively poisons the online advertising supply chain. The actor, Fiber Ads or Click Follow, is engaged in familiar kinds of ad fraud. Their activity also poses a risk of directing victims to landing pages that infect visitors with malware or at least unwanted programs. German schools, at least in the land of Hessen, the central German state where Frankfurt and Darmstadt are located, will no longer use cloud offerings from Microsoft, Google, and Apple. There are two issues here, data sovereignty and data privacy. If the data were stored in a properly bounded German cloud, that would be acceptable. But storing them in a European cloud that's in principle accessible to U.S. authorities won't fly. Data privacy is problematic because of the difficulty, perhaps the effective impossibility, of determining what data exactly the services collect. Consenting to collection is no solution because, Hessian authorities point out, it's impossible to give real consent when you can't tell what's being collected. Naked Security and others report this as a German policy, but it's worth noting that this is so far a matter for Hessen. Darmstadt's writ doesn't run in Stuttgart or Munich any more than, for example, the states of Texas and New York would necessarily feel compelled to knuckle under to a California rule, or, heaven forfend, even a Pennsylvanian policy. 
But it does seem likely that the Hessian decision will prove a bellwether for policy in the Federal Republic as a whole. Mimecast recently published their third State of Email Security report. Our own Carol Terrio spoke with Mimecast's Michael Mader about the report and some of the specific attacks they're tracking. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate the time. So, Michael, talk to me about impersonation attacks. What exactly is that? Yeah, so it's uh, an impersonation attack is an attack where you get, for example, an email from your boss that says, hey, Michael, it's Lucy. Um, As you know, I'm on traveling this week. Uh, I really need to close this deal. I'm speaking to a client um, and I need you to send the uh, the account information to me so I can close this deal with the client ASAP typically comes in the form of an email that's literally impersonating someone you know. Typically, it's someone in a a boss, it could be a colleague, it could be someone in finance, but it's, it's an attack that asks you at the end of the day to provide some sort of information that will open your company or or you uh, up to attack. Now, this also can be, uh, for example, through phone right? It could be through a text. It doesn't just have to be through email, but email is the most common form of impersonation attack. Right. And and so you guys have just put out a report called State of Email Security. This is your third report of this kind. And you have findings saying they're on the rise? You know, we looked at more than a thousand global IT decision makers. And uh, the, so the report is really comprehensive. And yeah, the attacks are on the rise. At the same time, confidence in defenses is, is falling, right? So for example, I think roughly 60% uh, of the respondents believe it's likely or inevitable that they'll suffer a negative business impact from an email-borne attack. Um, and 54% saw phishing attacks increase, and then 67%, I think close to 70, saw impersonation fraud increases, right? So it's, it's absolutely on the rise because it's these attacks, again, as I said, are getting increasingly more sophisticated, what, seemingly more sophisticated. Again, what I think what's really happening is these very sophisticated hackers are moving downstream to easier targets. Gotcha. Okay. And so are they basically, is this called email spoofing? Is this another name for it? It can be. I mean, it is technically, I mean, there's so many, you know, we're about to have, so yes, it's spoofing an email, but it's, it's a specific type of spoofing. It's a spoofing where you're pretending to be someone you're not. And then there's a huge, these are very, very impactful. For example, if I sent you a spoofing email for, you know, let's just say Amazon email, you might look at that and then just delete it. But if I sent you an email and I'm, and I'm a hacker and I sent an email from your boss saying, hey, I, I need this, uh, and, you're in, and you're in finance, right? And I said, I need this transaction to happen now. You need to send it to me. Well, that's a very, very different type of spoofing attack. So impersonation falls under spoofing because it's a type of spoof, but it's very, very targeted. And um, 73% of impersonation attacks have a direct loss. Gotcha. I mean, people are extremely vulnerable. And the reason is this, they're just really busy. Like security is not what 99.9% of normal people think about, right? What people are thinking about is doing their jobs, getting up, going to work, 
picking up their kids from daycare, you know, making sure they get the memo to their boss. And when they get a screaming email from someone they, that they think is really important, they want to respond to it. So these impersonation attacks are so, so incredibly effective because they really get at the psychological nerve of a person and uh, the person wants to do good and respond. There's two ways to address this, really, really only two ways, right? Way number one is you need a good product to stop the vast majority of these impersonation attacks. And that specifically has um, features within their product specifically for impersonation, right? That's, that's one. Um, and then two, you have to better train your employees so that they're more aware, so that they know, right? Right, 95% of all breaches involve human error, 95%, right? So whatever most companies are doing today in terms of awareness training, it's like not working. It's about engaging the employees, right? Why security is important, not just for their company, but for their own jobs and their own personal lives. Michael Maiden, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. CoFence warns that there's a novel phishing campaign in progress against a familiar group of targets, American Express customers. The phishing emails use a base HTML tag to split up the malicious URL into two pieces. This technique may succeed in bypassing email gateway filtering services. As is so often the case with phishing, user awareness can help the intended catch spit the hook. The email is rife with the sort of clumsy English grammar and syntax that so often disfigure the criminal come-on. What are they after? The usual. The crooks want user credentials. The U.S. House Armed Services Committee has asked to see, quote, all national security presidential memorandums related to Department of Defense operations in cyberspace. End quote. This sounds more sweeping than in fact it is. The document they're particularly interested in seeing is National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, a classified instruction generally believed to have loosened restrictions on offensive cyber operations. Some such operations would constitute the kind of persistent engagement U.S. Cyber Command tested last month in Exercise CyberFlag 2019. Members of Congress say they've received briefings on the direction the Defense Department received in NSPM 13. Some of them are content with that, but others want to see the document itself. Microsoft says it's detected a lot of state-directed cyber attacks over the past year, most of them originating from Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Redmond hints darkly that much of the activity represents an assault on democratic process. USA Today sees the warning as a sales pitch for election security tools. In fairness to Microsoft, they're already offering election security tools to campaigns for free, and there's nothing necessarily cynical about promotions and loss leaders. And besides, if you're selling a hammer, you're going to point out the various nails sticking up in the customer's house. NBC News's Frank Thorpe tweeted yesterday afternoon that Senator Schumer, Democrat of New York, has asked the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to open an investigation into FaceApp. At issue is what the senator characterizes as FaceApp's requirement that users give it full and irrevocable access to their images and associated data. He sees the Russian-developed app as posing a threat to both privacy and national security. As usual, the devil is in the details of the EULA. FaceApp's privacy policy gives the company the right to publish or use any content shared with its app, including usernames and real names, 
and to do so without providing further notice or compensating the users in any way. That does indeed seem pretty open-ended. And FaceApp stores the data it collects in Russia, which is enough to give anyone the heebie-jeebies nowadays. The Democratic National Committee has already warned its candidates not to use FaceApp, but it's a safe bet, people being the way they are, that some have already used it. So here's an alternative. If you really feel a need to see what you'd look like, older or younger, or for that matter, vegetable or mineral, get yourself a box of Crayolas and a pad and do a few imaginative self-portraits. Crayons and pads are already for sale and cheap as back-to-school items, so act now. And finally, we close with some good news. The high-tech crime unit of the Dutch National Police have collared a suspect in connection with the production and sale of malware. If you've run across malicious macros in Word or Excel files built from Rubella, Citan, or Dryad, you've seen some of his work. The 20-year-old suspect is so far unnamed, but he's known to live in Utrecht. So bravo to the high-tech crimes unit, and bravo to industry partner McAfee that provided them with important help. McAfee had been tracking the Rubella toolkit for some time, and the company provided the Dutch National Police with important support during their investigation. So bravo, McAfee, and to the Dutch National Police, good hunting. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Um, I saw an interesting security advisory come by from the folks who make uh, the Yubico keys, which are used to, to help secure devices. Um, and they found themselves in a situation where I, I guess some of their random number generation wasn't as random as they hoped it was. Uh, give us some insights. What's going on here? 
Well, as you know, uh, it's critically important when using cryptography that the keys that you choose and actually all the random values you use in the course of uh, implementing cryptography uh, have to be truly random. And a lot of times uh, in the real world, security vulnerabilities arise due to improper randomness in cryptographic protocols. Uh, we've seen this before. We saw this a couple of years ago with uh, generation of RSA keys by uh, routers. And we're seeing basically the same, a similar thing here again, where uh, improper randomness is being used at, at boot up time. And I guess essentially what's going on is that when the device is initially booted up, uh, there's some process that it goes through in order to try to uh, generate randomness that's then used as part of a cryptographic algorithm, and it wasn't doing it properly for whatever reason. Uh, and so the user was essentially getting uh, lower quality randomness than what they expected. Hmm. And, and this would open up uh, the possibility of what? Well, for let, let me take a simple example, uh, which doesn't really apply to the YubiKey, but it just gives an idea of what's going on. Uh, imagine that you're trying to generate, say, a random 128-bit uh, AES key, uh, but 64 of those bits are not random for whatever reason. Let's even say that they're all set to zero. So now what that's going to do is that's going to make the job of an attacker who's trying to guess the key a lot easier because rather than having to try to enumerate over a 128-bit key, which is 2 to the 128 possibilities, uh, now they only have to enumerate over a 64-bit key, which is 2 to the 64 different possibilities. Mm. And even though the difference between 128 and 64 uh, might sound small, uh, it's in the exponent here, right. and so and so two to the sixty four is is astronomically smaller than two to the one twenty eight, and so mm -hmm. it's a huge difference from the point of view of the attacker. Uh, in the case of the YubiKey, they were actually um, uh, looking at uh, improper randomness for public key algorithms rather than private key algorithms, but the basic idea is the same. Yeah, you know, I, I, to take a little brief uh, trip down memory lane, since you and I are of, of a, a similar generation of uh, having spent some time back in the 8-bit computer days, I, I remember, you know, back in the days of Apple IIs and TRS-80s that uh, we talk about random uh, number generation at power-up. If you powered up your computer and called for a random number, every, it would be the same every single time. <laughs> and well, the truth is it's not, <laughs> it's not so easy to generate random numbers. If you think about it, uh, computers are ultimately deterministic processes. And so a computer on its own uh, can't really generate a random number. And so what they need to do is ultimately rely on some physical input in order to generate randomness. Yeah. Um, you know, on, the, uh, on, on, a, on a desktop computer, you might use uh, user mouse movements or uh, keyboard mm -hmm. typing speeds or things like that to generate random data. But on a YubiKey, there's not that much that you can rely on. And so I'm not even sure offhand what they're using to generate randomness. But you can imagine that it might be quite difficult and might take some bit of time in order to generate true high-quality random data. Yeah, back in the day, we used to, uh, you know, press any key, and in between that, it was just, you know, internally generating random numbers, relying on the fact that, you know, not everyone would press any key at the same time. And right. for, for what it was worth, it worked. Right. <laughs> well, you're not. We're not. Not sure. I'm not, I wouldn't count on it to be honest. I think the uh, uh, the you level ruin of, everything, but, but, but you know, but this. But this <laughs> <laughs> but you're talking about computers from 35 years ago, and so right, right. I, I, it would not surprise me if they're vulnerable to the attacks of today. <laughs> uh, all right, fair enough, fair enough. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Great, thanks again. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.